Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. What a day. What a day it has been for me. What a day it has been for you. Last night as I left the microphone here, and welcome to the program, by the way. Welcome to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Last night as I left the microphone, I promised you full budget coverage. I promised you that I would be inside the budget lockup as I pretty much have been. If not for every budget since 2001, every federal budget, at least most. I may have missed one or two. I cannot recall. Today's one of the ones that I missed. And you can all guess why. Because we today we woke up to news that surpasses a budget announcement. And then in the middle of the day, we got more news that surpasses a budget announcement. We're dealing with news today that puts life in perspective. We're dealing with news today that makes a lot of people stop and take stock. If you follow me on Twitter, you will have noticed that middle of the day, I, well, on Facebook as well, I posted a photo from the Sean O'Sullivan Room in East Block on Parliament Hill. I'd gone by there, I'd gone by East Block to drop in on a National Defense Committee, was trying to speak to some people who are in on the intelligence racket in this country and get their take on what happened in Brussels. Quite frankly, the committee was happening as details were still emerging, so quite honestly, they couldn't tell me much. They said they were still waiting to find out information. But as I left the East Block building, I stopped in at the Sean O'Sullivan Room. That's the chapel on Parliament Hill. It's named for former conservative MP. In his day, he was the youngest MP elected. Hamilton boy. Was inspired by Diefenbaker, got into politics, and then left to become a Roman Catholic priest. So there's a chapel, multi-faith room, named in his honor on Parliament Hill. And I had to stop and just spend some time reflecting and pausing in the middle of an otherwise crazy day as we dealt with the issues of terrorism, as we dealt with the issues of people dying far too young in the name of Rob Ford. The budget kind of took a back seat after that, didn't it? I had a senior liberal walk up to me as I was waiting for Justin Trudeau to come into the foyer of the center block, or sorry, the foyer of the House of Commons, and give his comments on both Rob Ford and the terrorist attack in Belgium. I've known this guy for a while. And he looks over at me and he says, well, I guess the budget is now the third most important news story of the day, isn't it? And he's right. The budget's important, no doubt about it. And we'll get into the budget in great detail today. But what happened in Brussels, what happened with Rob Ford, both of them are far more important. In Brussels, people trying to go to the airport whether they're traveling on business or for a vacation, doesn't matter. They didn't expect that they were putting themselves in harm's way today. 
at the metro station where the other attack happened. People are just trying to go to work. I believe this all took place at 7 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time. 7 o'clock in the morning, what are you doing? Are you driving to work? Are you getting on the bus to go to work? Are you making the kids breakfast? In the middle of all that, a bomb goes off. More than 30 people dead, more than 100 injured. For what? Because people on the other side of the world have decided that they want to declare a caliphate. Because people on the other side of the world have decided that they want to impose their worldview on us. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau did denounce this earlier today. Here's a little bit of what he had to say. What happened today in Brussels was an act of terror. It was violence directed at innocent civilians, and its goal was to take lives and instill fear. We have offered the Belgian government all possible assistance and will continue to work closely with our allies and the international community to fight and to prevent terrorism here and abroad. Now people will quibble and say, well, he didn't say it was Islamic terrorism. He didn't blame Muslims. I don't believe at that point that the Islamic State had actually claimed credit for the attack. And even if they do, we can't take that at face value. We, we have to wait until we actually know. And so I will forgive the prime minister for not saying Islamic terrorism. I will forgive him for not saying that these were jihadis that did this. And quite frankly, I'm in a mindset where I don't really care. People had their lives snuffed out for no reason today. A friend of mine posted on social media, you remember after the uh, Charlie Hebdo attack in Paris, about a, well, 15 months ago now, January 2015, everyone was holding up little signs that said, Je suis Charlie. Today, hers on social media said, Je suis sick of this, and then a word I can't say. I kind of am as well. I'm tired of the terrorist attacks. I'm tired of the lack of response. But even in the middle of that, I can't blame the Prime Minister for not saying what we do not know. It is what we suspect, but we don't know for sure yet. We'll find out in coming days. Meanwhile, Rob Ford... A man just two years older than me died at 46 after an 18-month battle with cancer. You can hate Rob Ford. You can love Rob Ford. But at the end of the day, he was a man, he was a person like you and me, who put his pants on one leg at a time, got up every day, and did his job. Rob Ford faced demons. You don't end up smoking crack in a drunken stupor without facing demons, without having problems that you haven't dealt with. Rob Ford faced demons, but it wasn't the demons that got him in the end. It was something else. It was cancer. And that is something that every one of us at some point in our life has or will deal with. So tonight, put aside any ill feelings you have for Rob Ford and think of the man. Think of his family, think of his wife Renata, think of his two young children, think of his brother Doug, think of his mother still living. That's what we do for people when they die. 
we remember them. All of this happens on a day when the most important story is supposed to be the federal budget and what the liberals are going to do to waste $30 billion of our tax money. By the way, I told you it'd be $30 billion for the deficit. Now, if we're playing prices right rules, I went over. It's $29.4 billion. So Bob Barker or Drew Carey or whoever it is hosting the prices right, they might disqualify me. But I said it's not going to be $18 billion. It's not going to be 25 It's going to be $30 billion. And I was right. And according to the NDP, if it weren't for rating the EI fund, it, the deficit would be higher. We'll get into all of that later on. But today, if you made it through the day, if you made it through the day with your loved ones, then turn and give them a hug. Hold them tight. Don't let them go. Today is the type of day that teaches us there's some things more important than politics. Today is the type of day that teaches us there's some things more important than work. Lives snuffed out by a terrorist attack, people that didn't know what was coming, and a man taken far too early. We'll get into the news of the day later on. I'm Brian Lilly. This is News Talk 580 CFRA. listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Coming up later in the program, we'll speak with David Aiken. He's the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Sun Media, and he's got an interesting take on the budget. What's in there? What is not in there? Something you likely haven't heard of elsewhere. We'll also look into the NDP claim of the Liberals raiding the EI fund. Get into that later on. Ron Ambrose on um, CTV's Power Play. We'll bring you what she had to say. My chat with Tom Mulcair earlier in the day. That's coming up on the program. And Rick Smith from the Broadband Institute. He said this budget, not sufficiently, get this, not sufficiently mean to rich people. Rick wanted a meaner budget for rich people. I think he is a rich person. What is it with socialists and hating the fact that they have money? I don't get it. But Rick is one of my favorite socialists because he will actually still debate me and talk about things. And so uh, my conversation with Rick will come up later in the program. And I hope to firm up a time to speak with Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun. We're speaking about um, Rob Ford passing away, age of 46. I'll tell you, that scares me. I'm 44. Rob Ford died at 46 from cancer. That is, that is young. That is frightening. And it will leave you soul-searching. Joe Warmington knew Rob Ford like few other journalists. Joe is one of the, the last great gumshoe reporters. Like he, he gets out there. He talks to people. He gets in the middle of things. He knows all the players. 
He's got them on his cell phone. And he had Rob Ford on speed dial forever. Sometimes that got Joe in trouble because Rob would call him and tell him stuff and want it printed. And, and, and sometimes that wasn't always comfortable for Joe. But Rob Ford is more than the scandals. We'll get into that with Joe Warmington later on because I, I don't think a lot of the coverage that is out there right now is doing this man a service. And as someone that witnessed the love of Ford Nation firsthand, I can tell you, this guy, this guy had a devotion from his followers that most politicians would dream of. Jim Watson, our mayor here in Ottawa, will be mayor as long as Jim wants to be mayor. You know, unless he really messes things up or he's got some stellar candidate that, you know, with shiny locks and a pretty face up against him and I don't know what else. Jim's going to be mayor as long as Jim wants to be mayor. But even with all the love that people have for Jim Watson in this city, and sometimes all the not love, none of it compares to, I've never seen any politician have the devotion directed towards them as Rob Ford had. And I saw this firsthand on municipal election night in 2014. It blew me away. I'd heard about it, but I never saw it. Now, speaking of Jim Watson and Rob Ford, uh, Mayor Watson did have this to say about the passing of the former Toronto mayor. When someone passes away, you try to think of the good that they did for the community. And um, I think, uh, you know, he did a lot of good in terms of trying to push the city into a more fiscally responsible uh, state. But unfortunately, a lot of that was often overshadowed by his uh, personal challenges and sometimes his behavior. So uh, today's the day to, uh, to uh, sympathize and offer our condolences to his family and his constituents. Yeah, I think Jim hit it right there. Overshadowed. He did a lot of good and it was overshadowed. Now, some of that was Rob's own doing. Some of that was the result of the demons that I mentioned earlier. Some of that was the result of a media campaign led by the Toronto Red Star, which hated the fact that they didn't, they didn't have one of their good socialists leading the city anymore. Rob Ford was elected because the left wing at City Hall had gone way too far. And people were fed up and they wanted it over and done with. So Rob Ford ran and despite every attempt by the elites in the city, he was elected. And he wasn't elected by angry old white men, as we keep hearing. He was elected by one of the most diverse groups of people I've ever seen. If you had been with me out at this banquet hall in Etobicoke on October 27th, 2014, you would be shocked at the rainbow diversity that you saw there. People from every creed, color, ethnicity showing up because they felt Rob Ford actually talked for them. It was shocking for me to see, given what I'd heard in the media. Now, the other story is, the other story that is overshadowing the budget, which we'll spend uh, the next half hour talking about, is, of course, the terrorist attack that happened in Brussels. President Obama was in Cuba today, 
he attended a baseball game with Raul Castro. There was a moment of silence. But Obama also spoke about what happened in Brussels and the resolve of the United States to stand with their NATO ally. The thoughts and the prayers of the American people are with the people of Belgium. And we stand in solidarity with them in condemning these outrageous attacks against innocent people. We will do whatever is necessary to support our friend and ally Belgium in bringing to justice those who are responsible. And this is yet another reminder that the world must unite. We must be together, regardless of nationality or race or faith, in fighting against the scourge of terrorism. We can and we will defeat those who threaten the safety and security of people all around the world. Now, just like I gave Trudeau a pass in those early hours for not saying this is Islamic terrorism, for not saying this is jihad, Obama spoke early enough that still don't know exactly who's behind this. And as someone who's been caught by that in the past, probably a smart move for him not to say it. Of course, he never will say it, and neither will Trudeau. And that's the real problem. But I don't blame them for not saying it in the early hours. But let me say this. If this were a state actor attacking Belgium, I want you to ponder this. If this were a state actor attacking Belgium, Canada and the United States would now be in a position of going to war because Belgium is a NATO ally. An attack on one is an attack on all. But because this was carried out by people who likely were loyal to ISIS, and I'm sure that will come out in coming days, and ISIS is not an actual state, what do you declare war on? The laws of war drawn up around the era of the First World War don't apply anymore. They don't make sense for what we're dealing with. But were this an attack that actually took on Belgium, let's say it was the Germans, or the French, or another country, Canada, right now, would be called to go to war. Do you think we'd be ready? I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, David Aiken from Sun Media on the issue of the federal budget. Ronna Ambrose and what she had to say coming up. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Welcome to the program led by the leader of the unofficial opposition. The headline on David Aiken's new column coming out of the budget says, Red is the new black liberals have no exit plan. David Aiken joins me now uh, via phone. David, you've been in the budget lockup all day. I know it's been a a long day. Thanks for taking some time. That's okay. It's a long day because we want to be able to tell people about all the red ink that we're going to see spilled in this country for, well, I'd like to tell you for when, but this is the point. (laughs) We don't know when. There Uh, there is no exit plan. There is no exit plan. And that red is the new black. I got to give props where it's due. That's one of my favorite economists, a guy named Doug Porter. Doug is the chief economist at BMO Capital Markets, 
and we were chatting about it, and I think that's what he's calling his thing. And I said, that's too good to turn down. Red is the new black. Well, in fairness, you do quote Doug. Yes. uh, Who we both interviewed many times over the years. You do quote him, uh, and you give him credit for that in your column. So I recommend this column to anyone. It's on the Ottawa Sun website right now or all the Sun papers across the country. Uh, The weird thing about this, though, Brian, is is economists like Doug or, you know, the basery guy or the academics, um, they all think, this is a big deal. We're going to run a $30 billion deficit next year, a $30 billion deficit the year after that. We'll be adding $100 billion to the debt before the next election. They all say that's no problem because you can afford it. Interest rates are low. But I guess one of the points I'm trying to make in the column is we're not in the kind of trouble that we were in back in 2009 when Stephen Harper was racking up monster-sized deficits. In 2009, our economy was shrinking. I mean, it was collapsing. People mm-hmm. were losing jobs left, right, and center. Well, our economy, by finance minister Bill Morneau's own admission, is growing. It's growing slowly now, but it's going to get growing quickly. Well, so it's it, growing. It, and I remember back in 2008 going to the uh, the StatsCan building the first Friday of every month to cover yep. the jobs report numbers. And for far too long, it just kept going in one direction. The jobless rate would go up and up. At one point, I believe the figure was we were spending $5 billion a week out of the government's general revenue to subsidize EI because there wasn't enough money in the EI fund. $5 billion a week. There were so many people unemployed. And that's not the case now, even with the higher unemployment in Alberta. Right. And and, uh, and not only is our economy growing and unemployment, while it's a problem in some regions, you're quite right, uh, issues like inequality. Uh, which you hear a lot of liberals and progressives talk about, actually as is shrinking. We're closing the inequality gap. Okay. Don't it, believe the hype on this one. It's closing. We're and, seeing g- wages grow, medium wages. The average wage of the working man and woman has been growing during the Harper decade. And this, and is, so, why I, this is why I wanted to call you on, because we've been hearing that we've got to spend all this money and do all these things because the middle class is hurting. And a lot of people probably think they are hurting, and maybe individually certain people are. But you point out that from uh, 1982 until about 2005, the rich were getting richer. Those were mostly liberal years, not all, but a lot of it were liberal years. And but from 2005 on, until recently, they, you know, wages did start to turn around. Right, the rich... If you were among the, I'm talking the super rich elite, million dollar a year guys, the 0.1 or 0.01 percent, you did worse in the Harper decade. You're actually worse off now than when Stephen Harper took over in 2006, even if you measure from 2000. So the rich, the super richest, they're worse off. The rest of us, we're better off. That's a combination of increased uh, incomes that we're all earning but also increase transfers or lower taxes, because that's a key uh, determinant as well. So over the last decade, we've paid uh, lower taxes. The GST cut is the big one, but also there's been more transfers. We did see lots of things uh, like the working income tax credit. That was a Harper government innovation, went to a whole lot of people. Things like the universal child care benefit went to, well, it's universal, went to every parent. Uh, things like all sorts of tax credits. Now, the liberals have rolled back and removed some of those tax credits, no longer will you get a tax credit for your children's fitness programs, for example. But the liberals say 
They're replacing it with another mix of things for parents. That's all well and good if they want to do that. But I guess it's just don't tell us that we've got to go into deficit because the world's ending when by any measure the world is not ending. The world is, is getting along just fine. Our economy is improving. By all means, let's spend some money on things like drinking water systems on our First Nations. That's an embarrassment to the country. And, yes, we should spend money on stuff like that. But some other things, I'm just trying to get – give me the rationale because I wasn't convinced reading that budget that it is appropriate to take us $100 billion in debt. And I guess the thing is, what if we got in real trouble? What would we do then? Because we're losing our capacity to really respond if we do have a recession in two, three, four, five years. I'll be playing the audio later, but um, it was shocking to hear Tom Mulcair in the scrum right after. I asked him directly about the small business tax cut. The small business tax rate was at 11%. During the election, all three parties said they would follow through on the conservative promise to lower the small business tax rate to 9% on your first $500,000. Now, if if you've got a staff, $500,000, if you've got a staff above one or two people, and you've got you know, the cost of running your business, that doesn't go as far as you might think. That gets eaten up very quickly. But on the first $500,000, it was supposed to be 9% in the coming years. And the liberals have paused that. I had Tom Mulcair, the leader of the Socialist Party, ripping into the liberals saying, don't they get it? These are the job creators. Yeah. I, I, that, that surprised the heck out of me. Well, and good for Tom. I couldn't get up to the scrums fast enough for the lockup. Uh, we were over at Old City Hall for this one. Um, but good for him for doing that. And, and really, one of the things that shocked me as I talked to what I'll call the liberal think tank industry, and you know the types we're talking about here, Brian, well-intentioned people who just believe that there's never a problem that existed that a government program couldn't solve. And in fact, they can invent government programs. They can invent problems just so there can be a government program to solve them. They're, they're, they're well-intentioned. They want the best of the country. Fine. But I would walk up to them and they'd say, well, the liberals are just doing all the things they said they do. And I, I'm like, what are you kidding? How is that possible? They said, they promised not five months ago, they'd cut small business taxes. And they said, not going to do that. They said, if you're a Tom Mulcair, the socialist, they said they'd tax stock options. Get all those rich people, tax their stock options. Liberals aren't going to do that. There's another broken promise. If you're Tom Mulcair or your Green Party, Elizabeth May, you might have been counting on the Liberals to fulfill the campaign pledge that there would be a climate change framework done and sealed 90 days after that big Paris climate change meeting. That was in the platform. They said they'd do it 90 days. And all we had was a previous meeting where they kicked it down the road probably for another year. And then there's the three biggies, what I call the three biggies, the fiscal anchors, because it's anchors away, folks. No, we told you it was going to be a $10 billion deficit cap. It's $30 billion. We said we balanced the budget by fiscal 20. Forget it. We don't know when we're going to balance the budget. And we said we'd lower the debt-to-GDP ratio every single year of our mandate. Eh, can't do that either. It's going up next year. The three key fiscal anchors of the Liberals' election platform fiscal plan all thrown out the window today. Some key election promises broken, a whole raft of them. It's going to be disappointing. Tom O'Care, Elizabeth May, and sure enough, Ron Ambrose, the opposition leader. Well, one thing, and uh, we're running out of time to get into this, but the, the NDP pointing out that there's more than a billion dollars being taken out of the EI fund this year. Mulcair called that a, a return to the good old liberal days. 
of yeah, raiding EI to pay for your promises. I mean, that but that deficit, if they weren't doing this, would be over $30 billion. Uh, it would be. And, and I'm going to take Mulcair's uh, complaints with a grain of salt. Uh, he certainly is focused on that. That's a key priority for uh, the New Democrats is making sure EI is strong. The liberals did make it easier to get EI. You can qualify quicker, qualify with fewer hours. You're going to be able to get EI for more weeks. 70 uh, weeks, David. 50. 70 weeks. 70 weeks you're going to you be can, able to qualify you can for. You can get pogey for more than a year. Right. I find that ridiculous. So we're going to need all that, whatever's in the EI fund. So I want to check on those claims, double check them. But, yeah, there's Mulcair. You know, we're going to – actually, the whole EI argument is one we're going to have, I think. That is going to be one of that's going to be top of the charts uh, when we get to the uh, question period tomorrow afternoon in the House. All right. Well, that'll be fun to see. David Aiken, you can read them in the Ottawa Sun and Sun Media newspapers. Thanks for your time, my friend. Thanks, Brian. Cheers. Enjoy that scotch after a long day of work. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We heard from David Aiken from Sun Media on the budget. Let's um, let's hear a little bit from the opposition leaders. We're going to play you the interview that uh, Ron Ambrose gave to CTV's Power Play earlier today and then bring you my interchange, my interaction with Tom Mulcair. But just after five o'clock, Ron Ambrose sitting down with Don Martin on Power Play. Welcome to the era of big deficits. I guess you're having a, a surplus burning party or something tonight? We're having a, uh, a wake for the surplus at Aaron O'Toole's office in memory of Jim Flaherty, which I'm sure is looking down with you know, a lot of disdain right now. Okay, but your, your opposition to deficits is well known. I, I guess we're just trying to figure out where you might have done things differently than the Liberals did. They have put an awful lot of money into First Nations, put a lot into infrastructure. Um, are they on a wrong track? What would you take out of this budget if you could? Well, it's not so much about what you take out. It's about how you build a budget. So if you think back to when we had a global recession in 2008, we went into a deficit. But we also started to look at ways in which we could rein in our spending all, you know, writ large in terms of our government. Now, the government spends almost $292 billion a year. So we should be able to live within our means. And we didn't raise taxes. And we also had a plan to come back to a balanced budget. I think those are the kinds of signals that the business community likes to see. You're not going to raise our taxes, which they are today. And you're going to have a plan to get back to a balanced budget. That's an important signal that the business community looks for. So this budget's not good for taxpayers because we've seen an increase in personal income taxes by $1.3 billion this year. Next year, it ramps up to $2.3 billion increase in taxes. And small businesses are being hit with payroll taxes. So I, I don't see how you stimulate the economy by hitting small businesses. They're the... I mean, they are the engine of our economy. I'm curious, uh, you're first and foremost an Alberta MP, and I clearly think they were aiming these EI reforms for giving longer benefits over a longer period of time. Is that enough? Well, it's not enough because I'll tell you, I know a lot of people who have lost their homes even in the region that I represent, and yes, they need EI, 
they don't want EI, but they need EI. What they want is a job to go back to. So what, a, what I think people would have liked to have seen is just a nod towards energy infrastructure. I know the Prime Minister doesn't want to play favorites, but he could also say we put in place you know, some certainty around this pipeline process. We hope that pipelines will be built once they get through the process. At least to say, if energy gets through this new pipeline process, then we will support it. And we think it's a good thing to get our oil to market. But we didn't see any of that today. We've had a horrific uh, public safety incident uh, in Brussels, as you know. A lot of dead, an awful lot injured. Terrorism, clearly the cause. Um, public safety budget didn't Very go small. up. Well, $57 million boost in a public safety budget. It's not very what do you much. think that says? Well, I think it says that, I mean, well, I guess it speaks volumes. I mean, these guys are all about spending, right? And if the Liberals like something, they spend a lot of money on it. I mean, that's the way they operate. So my question is, does that mean that we don't need to do anything else to keep our public safe? I, I think that Canadians want to know they've got all the right tools in place to fight terrorism at home and abroad. And I guess that'll be a question for the public safety minister. You know, is this not a priority? And you also, when you were the public works minister, uh, started the ship procurement, shipbuilding procurement. Um, I'm looking at the deficit, or the sorry, the defense spending, and there's only one negative in the whole budget of, of decreased spending, and it's in defense procurement. What does that say to you? Well, I think we have to remember that defense spending, particularly the shipbuilding strategy, which is a big part of that budget, creates thousands of jobs on the Atlantic coast and on the West Coast. And those ships are being built in Canada, so I hope there's still a commitment to those jobs because it is a job-creating investment that the government made over the long term. I'm not sure what this says. I think what a lot of people in the forces will say is that clearly there isn't a commitment to buying any new equipment for the men and women in the armed forces. Again, public safety defense may be not quite the priority of this government. One thing they did do is took some bit of delight, I think, in taking some of the fitness tax credits and education tax credits and arts tax credits out. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the last shot at the Harper government's tax policies. Why isn't it better to have a child benefit that actually is more all-encompassing rather than these piecemeal ones targeted at kids? Doesn't one size fit all when you're a kid? Well, I think we'll have to wait and see because the difference between the universal child care benefit that we had was that it was universal. Now, their new child benefit is income tested and it depends on how much money you have, whether or not you'll receive it. So we don't know who's going to lose out in this whole scheme of things. And let's say you're one of those people that loses out. Well, you also lose out in the child fitness tax credit, the textbook tax credit, the education tax credit. And those were things that a lot of families really used. And so I think, you know, we, we still have to see who is going to be the loser in this whole uh, trade-off. You think it's possible uh, in all this that at the end of the day, the taxpayers will see all these goodies, uh, see infrastructure spending roll out, see First Nations reasonably happy, that the deficit just won't matter? Well, it's interesting you say that because we're not seeing that anymore in Ontario. People are asking that the Ontario government balance the budget. There's a lot of pressure on provincial governments to balance the budget, and Canadians say their top of mind issue right now is jobs and taxes. There be, if you combine the new income tax hikes that the federal government has brought in with provincial income tax hikes across this country, people are being overtaxed and they're feeling it. So now we see 
you know, another increase in taxes at the federal level and business, small business tax rates being impacted, I think, you know, people, at some point, you have to stop taking from people and show them that you're willing to live within your own means. All right. Ron Ambrose, thanks for stopping by. I appreciate this. Thanks. Ron Ambrose on with Don Martin earlier today on CTV's Power Play. Now, you heard Ambrose talking about taxes going up, and yes, taxes are going up, but they're also not going down as promised. I mean, could you call this a tax hike? The small business tax rate was at 11%. It was supposed to go down to 9 That had already been passed into legislation. All three parties backed it in the last election, but now the Liberals are stalling it and saying, no, it won't go below 105 So it was supposed to be 9 a year or two from now. Now it's going to stay at 105 well, Tom Mulcair, the leader of the Socialist Party, is upset at that. Here's my question to Mulcair and his answer. Uh, on the small business tax rate, uh, you said that you would have accelerated it. Yes. They decided to, to hold. Yes. But th- they keep saying they want to um, you know, get productivity going in the economy. Yes. They want growth. Isn't this a, a missed opportunity? It is an incredible missed opportunity, uh, frank- frankly, and... Brian, I, I can't for the life of me understand why the Liberals don't get it. They keep talking about the fact that the economy is slowing down, that we're shedding jobs, which are both true statements. We know that the job creators in Canada are the small and medium-sized businesses. So that reduction would have allowed them to maybe consolidate part-time positions, make them full-time, maybe hire new people. And for them to be completely abandoning their own promise is, is frankly, for us, one of the most surprising aspects of this budget. One of the most surprising parts of the budget. Now, thankfully, they didn't touch stock options, and I talked about that before. They did not touch the stock options. That leaves Mulcair upset, and we'll play Rick Smith from the Broadband Institute later. But Mulcair, Mulcair is slamming the liberals for not lowering the small business tax rate. If they had done what they did with the small business tax rate plus dealt with the stock options with which companies like Shopify and many other tech startups in Ottawa had spoken out against, it would have been a slam against innovation and economic growth by the job creators of this country. And those are the types of people that need to be in, encouraged, not discouraged. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You're listening to News Talk 580 CFRA. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. He just gave a damn about the people that he represented. Like, I, I can't think of any other politician that was that actually return all the calls. Former progressive conservative leader Tim Hudak reflecting on Rob Ford, of course, getting the news earlier today that Rob Ford passed away at the age of 46. That, that part blows me away. I didn't realize that Rob was so young. Passed away at age 46 after a battle with cancer and, of course, a battle with demons. But there's more to that man than controversy. There's more to that man than scandal. And to talk about that, I want to bring on my friend Joe Warmington. Joe and I work together at Sun Media, and as I said earlier in the show, 
He's one of the great, one of the last great gumshoe-type reporters that gets out there in the field, gets his hands dirty, and talks to everyone. And one man you talked to a lot, Joe, was was Rob Ford. So since everyone's just talking about Kimmel, we'll get to Kimmel later. Everyone's talking about the crack. Everyone's talking about his problems. What was it about Rob Ford that people loved? Long before the scandal, long before any controversy, why did people love Rob well, I think it's because he loved people, and he loved the city of Toronto uh, more than anything. He was a ward healer. You know, he was the kind of guy that he knew everybody in his ward, and he drove the kind of bureaucracy crazy. Because if somebody had a problem with something in the city, he would go right into the office of the people that are supposed to fix it, and were avoiding the calls, and say, you're going to fix it. If not, I'm going to call Joe over at the Sun, and we're going to go do a story. We did lots of those stories. I got to know him um, early on, and I I identified him as somebody that would definitely make it as mayor. I knew he'd get elected. I knew he'd win, and I knew he'd be a great mayor, too. And he was for the first two years. And, uh, you know, the left stole the the job from him. They they used the the best lawyer we've got in Clayton Ruby, and they found some weird loophole about raising money because he – had used his own uh, letterhead to raise money for kids football for these, you know, a lot of places don't have hundreds and hundreds of kids that don't have parents and this kind of stuff. Rob paid for their own football uniforms and all that kind of stuff. So they, they stole his job. And in that six weeks, Brian, until the court reversed that, that's when Rob went into depression and got hooked on uh, things that you shouldn't have got hooked on. No, I mean, and that's, I, I... that's the real story. I mean, that's the story they don't tell you. Yeah, and I want to get into that a little bit. I, I'm guessing that, like a lot of people in politics, um, Rob wasn't a stranger to the bottle before he had those problems. No. Uh, but he, do you think he had uh, a problem with with booze before he got into the trouble? Because you're right, there was a, a media campaign and a campaign orchestrated by the left, much like we had against Mayor Larry O'Brien here in, in Ottawa, where it was the organized left said, we don't like that there's a conservative mayor, and they tried to take him down. It's a style that they're using with Donald Trump as well, and it's a shun and shame game. Yeah, Rob Ford liked to pound back a few uh, pops before he was in trouble, before it, uh, a Leaf game where he was mouthing off. He could do it, but the drugs, is, the crack cocaine or whatever it was, because it's different people, people say different things, but in essence it was something along those lines was something that he couldn't uh, beat. You don't try that once, generally. So, you know, he was so down and depressed. He doesn't even remember. He told me this. He didn't even remember the first time even partaking in it. He thought he was smoking, and he didn't even know what the hell it was. So I don't know why uh, these people that love safe injection sites and were supposed to pay for that and care, be compassionate, put it right next to a nursery school. The same people who couldn't stand the fact that this guy had addictions and that they, you know, wanted him out as mayor, and they did everything they could. I never liked that. You know, look at uh, the elect. The electorate can decide that for themselves. Let them decide. Not an unelected premier, which Kathleen Wynne was at the time. And you know, today she's full of all these heartfelt uh, condolences, and I'm not buying it for a minute, Brian. And and fair enough. But I say on a day like this, put everything aside. We're all human. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. I don't put so, it aside because I don't forget what these people did she, to Rob Ford. They, you know? and, and you're right. She was part of an organized campaign, perhaps. But um, I know that uh, that there were 
there were people with money who decided that this man shouldn't be the mayor. And long before he was the butt of jokes, because of controversy, that was that was the scandal. I mean, it, the Red Star couldn't stop writing stories about him. I mean, they followed well, they, him into a KFC one day. Right. Well, that, I don't know if it was them that did that, but they certainly did the story on it. And again, they never reported that he was buying that for a family in the TCHC house. And so, you know, that that changes the story, doesn't it? But but the, that, the reality that, that's is... That's Toronto public housing. Right. And the, the part that gets me about the Toronto Star is that they introduced checkbook journalism to, to Canada. We'd never had it before. I'd never seen it in my 30 years. These guys are meeting with people that are, you know, basically being investigated by the police for trying to extort the guy and negotiating for, you know, evidence to destroy him. And it went on and on and on. And, you know, again, we at The Sun, and, you know, you were around for a lot of that yourself, we never once paid for any of that. We did the job the right way. We're always fair. The guy always returned the calls. Remember when we brought him into Sun News Network and we were all there. We did the show. I remember yep. Ezra there and the mentoid and myself. Other people, Sneha, and uh, we did the show, and he answered every question. So, look, at the guy had flaws and all of those things. We accept that. But he was also a great mayor, and the budget never got over $11 billion in he, four he years. He actually lowered spending, didn't he? He, he did. He did. And I mean, he went after a politician to lower spending, Joe? That just doesn't happen. And he took away things like this car registration tax. He was working on the land transfer tax. You know, in Toronto, the we bag paid tax. two land transfer taxes. Yeah, yeah. We don't. I don't think we have that here. You guys had two land transfer taxes. Right. He wanted to take one away, and he started to strip it away. So he was the guy that fought. I wrote this on TorontoSun.com. If you get a chance, give it a read. I don't know how it plays in Ottawa, how Rob Ford plays. You know, I think they look at it from afar. But I, I think the most important thing that I can say is that, yes, he had flaws. But this guy was the real deal, and he called everybody back. And if there was a problem, he would go and get it fixed. And you know what? Uh, if they'd left him alone and worked with them and not tried to sort of, in essence, usurp his power and take his job, you know, I think you, you don't think he would have You don't think he would have gotten into the drugs? I don't think so, no. I think he would have still, you know, had his nights out and stuff like that. But, no, he, he did that. He told me that, that. He was just so depressed and so down about that. He didn't think he was getting that mayor's job back because mm-hmm. he knew that the fix was in with the big money around here. But the big money's happy now. They've got you know the right people in power now. They're going to get all their projects and 30-year studies and things that take forever to do. And the nice thing about Rob Ford is he said, look, if we're going to do it that way, let's have a, a subway, then underground subway all the way out to Scarborough. And then we'll do the one over by here. And then we'll do this one. None of these that you're hearing about now that's all over the place so i don't know i mean so i, I, I yeah you Go know ahead, my, my, my insight into ford nation because i'd met rob i'd interviewed him i've met doug several times and, and they're two very different guys but um but they're a te- they were a team they absolutely were but my insight into ford nation came when for municipal election night 2014 i had to be in etobicoke and I was out at Ford Nation headquarters. Rob was supposed to run for mayor. He got sick with cancer, dropped out. Doug replaced him on the ballot and came very close to winning. Uh, but, you know, what we'd heard, Joe, from the chattering classes is, well, you know, these Ford guys, it's the suburbs. It's old, angry white guys. That's always the 
the the dismissive tone they use as if being old or angry or white are all somehow bad. Um, but but there I am out in this banquet center. Were you there that night, or were you elsewhere? Yeah. No, I was there. A- I and was, there. It, was that n- not one of the most diverse crowds you've ever seen? It it you know it, it's so true because things that were said about Rob Ford and Doug Ford and Ford Nation were inaccurate. And having been to most of the Ford Nation parties, what you found out there were hardworking, you know, in essence, blue-collar people, but basically people that were real Torontonians. And, you know, you had people from all over the GTA that were attracted to Rob as well. But anyway, it it is what it is. And the people who uh, did this to Rob know exactly who they are. And I don't forget who they are. And so, you know, again, I, I guess I'm a little tired now, and a little cranky now, Brian, but I just I just get tired of seeing on the TV here in Toronto all these people with their platitudes because they don't mean it. They weren't nice to him. He needed help. He had depression, and he had drug problems that were brought on because they piled on the guy and took his job for raising money for football. There's your storyline. There's your storyline. I'm glad to be able to say it in Ottawa because that's the truth, and Again, he has to take some responsibility for sure, but it was over the top in the response that they did to try to steal his job. Well, I'm glad you're able to come on today and, and set the record straight. I, I think there's just been too much about uh, crack and Jimmy Kimmel and this and that. You did tell me earlier, and I, I know we're almost out of time, but you did tell me earlier you've got the real story on Kimmel because he went on Jimmy Kimmel. It was a bit of a disaster that night. What are well, your Jimmy Kimmel quickly? came to me. Jimmy Kimmel came to me about getting him to come on, and they were going to have fun and all this kind of stuff. So I talked Rob into it because everybody wanted him, and I said Kimmel's the place to go because it'll be fun. I didn't think of him as this raving lefty, and mm-hmm. he went on there and he basically, you know, he did the old sixty minutes on him. Now that's okay. I don't have any problem with Jimmy Kimmel doing that, but that's not what they told Rob what was going to happen. He wasn't ready for it. It was an ambush. And then Jimmy Kimmel, even his statement today made me sick. I've never watched Jimmy Kimmel since that show because I feel that he kind of used me. And he also really, really, you know, took advantage of a guy that was down. And, uh, you know, if he's okay with it, that's okay with uh, with him. But it isn't okay with me. I won't watch him ever again. And, uh, you know, I know that it really hurt Rob's feelings. But I told Rob, look, at, you know, you got to remember one thing, that at the end of the day, all that matters is your family and to get healthy. And you know what? The story that needs to be told here, Brian, is that he did get off of that stuff. He did go to rehab. The first month was rocky, but he fought through it. He's pretty proud of that. And, of course, Jimmy Kimmel never mentioned that today. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for setting the record straight, and thanks for giving us insight from behind the scenes. I love coming on with you. I love your your show. I'm so glad you're doing it. I love Bill Carroll in the morning. And uh, you know what? Maybe it's time that I make a return to the Capitol. You come back up to Ottawa? (laughs) Well, you never know. We'd love to have you. Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun. Make sure you read his columns about Rob Ford over the coming days at torontosun.com. Joe, thanks so much. Thank you. Stick around. This is Beyond the News. My name's Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. On the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA.
So it's just before 8.30 here in the nation's capital on a, a dark and rainy late winter night. Not quite spring yet, is it? No, that'd be tomorrow. Uh, you know, it's 8.30 at night, folks. And I'm watching a guy in the gym across the street, one of these gyms with the big windows everywhere, and he's working the ropes. He's got these huge ropes, and he's flailing them, and he's been going for for several minutes right now. It's making me feel lazy. Let's just say that. But another person that makes me feel lazy, makes me feel like I'm not doing enough, is Stuntman Stu. Um, We'll get into Stu in a minute. He's one of two special events that they're honoring, or two two things that they're marking at the Senators game tonight out at the Canadian Tire Centre. The first, of course, the horrible terror attack in Belgium this morning. And before the game, as they were playing the national anthems of Canada and the United States, they also held a moment of silence and played the Belgian national anthem. We now ask that you join the Washington Capitals and the Ottawa Senators for a moment of silence, followed by the playing of the Belgium National Anthem, the singing of the Star Spangled Banner and O Canada by Lyndon Sluage will follow. Today's colors are presented by the RCMP. It was a nice moment a couple months ago when the the attacks in Paris happened in November. The NAC Orchestra opened a Pops concert by playing the La Marseillaise. As I said, it's one of two events or items being honored, marked by the Senators today. The other is stuntman Stu, Stu Schwartz, who is the PA announcer for the Ottawa Senators, the morning show host here at Magic 100 and the the Bell Media Building, and um, a friend to everyone he meets, I'd say. He and his family, Connie and the kids, are the guests of Eugene Melnick out at the game tonight. Of course, Stu battling leukemia, and he has developed this. Um, he has developed this fundraising passion. Well, the senators are they? I mean, they put it up. You can see, find it on Twitter. You can find it on Stu's Instagram. Uh, they're using this to to encourage people to donate. And Dean and Gord calling the game earlier. We're talking about this on TSN 1200. Face off to the left of the Washington goal. Nice round of applause for a foul. Stu Schwartz, stuntman Stu, here in the building tonight in Eugene Melnick Suite with his family. Of course, Stu continues his battle with leukemia. Chemo continues. Telling us tonight, still searching for a 
bone marrow donor. Fight continues though, and he will win it. Pain is temporary. Hashtag Stu Strong. And of course, if you want to join in on the Stu Strong, there's plenty of ways to do it. Just look up Stu Schwartz on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. You'll have directions there. You can also order the Stu Strong t-shirts. They're selling a ton of them, all made by an Ottawa company, all raising money for cancer research. It was good to see TSN and the Senators put up all the information on how to donate. I'm sure they've raised a lot of money for a good cause tonight. Uh, We're going to go into break, and I'll be back after the break with more on the federal budget. As you guys listen to the news, I'm going to turn around and watch these people exercising and making me feel lazy. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. It's not just me that is unimpressed with Justin Trudeau's first budget. It's not just David Aiken. Nobody will accuse David Aiken of being a conservative. Nobody that knows him. He's a straight shooter. He he tries to to do, you know, walk the line and call it like he sees it. He, He tries not to be on the blue team, the red team, or the orange team. But the NDP, not happy with the budget. You heard Tom Mulcair earlier. And then there's other assorted left-wing groups, like the Broadband Institute. I actually love talking to Rick Smith. He's the executive director of the Broadband Institute. He's an unrepentant leftist. I love debating with him, talking with him, because he just he doesn't hide who he is. So we were chatting in the railway room. Uh, one of the committee rooms on in the House of Commons, in sorry, in the Parliament buildings, after the budget was released. And he had a very different critique than I have. This is our chat. I'm with Rick Smith. He is the executive director of the Broadband Institute, and he is saying that this budget, not mean enough to rich people. Why would you say that, Rick? Come on. Well, I mean, this, this budget uh, spends a lot. But, uh, but it really misses the boat on creating a truly fair tax agenda. So it doesn't, it doesn't raise corporate income tax, even though, uh, uh, even though uh, our corporate income tax rate is uh, way below the OECD average. Um, the, the so-called uh, middle-class tax cut uh, actually disproportionately flows to the richest Canadians. Two-thirds of Canadians uh, are going to see uh, very little, if anything, from this, uh, this tax cut. Uh, there's no action on closing the stock options loophole, no action on uh, closing the capital gains loophole. So I think there's some missed opportunities in this budget to uh, address the, uh, the, the revenue issue that the federal government has. All right. Well, let me ask you first off about the stock option loophole, as you call it. Uh, Shopify, big Ottawa company, global leader in terms of back-end um, production for uh, online commerce. This is a company that came out against it and said, we were not rich people when we used this so-called stock option loophole. This is what technology companies use to attract top talent. Don't they have an argument there? Well, let's, let's acknowledge for starters, the most Canadians, uh, in fact, almost every Canadian, has no idea what a stock option loophole is because that's not how they're paid. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that uh, some of the richest Canadians get paid in stock options. These things are taxed at 50% 
the rate that uh, that earned income is, like the income that you and I uh, take home uh, every week, and it's just, just, that's just not fair. Now, I think there's for for specific reasons for startups, for certain kinds of venture capital uh, uh, folks, I think there's ways of uh, modifying the taxation around stock options to make it into the kind of uh, 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 incentive that they're looking for uh, and, uh, and contribute to the kind of entrepreneurial culture in Canada. But there is no reason why uh, Bay Street CEOs should be compensated uh, in stock options and taxed at a, at a much lower rate than ordinary Canadians. I, I would argue that there's probably more stock options out there, whether they're successful or not, in startups than there are in Bay Street CEOs. And, and I think a lot of people can, can look in that and go, yeah, you know, you take a risk, you take a pay cut, you work for a startup. I think people can understand that more than they can understand, uh, you know, a big bank CEO. Well, I think that's right. Actually, that that, uh, that if you're if you're a startup, you know something that, that that's good for the Canadian economy. We want that kind of innovation. We want that kind of imagination. Uh, you know, let's let's talk about whether whether stock options are part of that compensation portfolio. But but according to the latest estimates, you know the federal treasury is out something like 800 million bucks a year because stock options are taxed at such a low rate, and that's just ridiculous. At, at hey, but, but, yeah, hold on, Rick. Revenue is way down. Hold on. You, you're saying the federal treasury is out money because it's taxed at a different rate. This goes back to the argument you and I have been having for years. Whose money is it? And you seem to view all money as government money until the government allows you to keep it. No, actually, in this case, Brian, I think the shoe's on the other foot, right? That, that, uh, what I'm arguing is that, uh, that there should be some fairness to the tax system and if your if your uh, take home during the year is over a million bucks a year uh, and you're getting a lot of your compensation in stock options uh, and you're actually paying a lower tax rate than uh, than your neighbor who's uh, who's you know got a, got a, um, a, a, a is making less than a million bucks a year that's just not fair um, you know another example is capital gains I mean why aren't why aren't capital why aren't capital gains taxed at a similar rate to, uh, to earned income. Uh, we've created, over the past few decades, a tax system that disproportionately benefits rich Canadians. And what I'm interested in is some fairness and some equality across tax, uh, uh, taxed incomes. There have been several studies on capital gains tax over the years that show if you increase the capital gains tax rate, you actually get less revenue. President Obama, this was pointed out to him, and he said, well, it doesn't matter how much money the government gets from this, it's about fairness. So when the capital gains tax rate is cut, government revenue sometimes goes up, often goes up. When it is increased, government revenue goes down. So what's more important, getting more revenue for the government out of a system or just saying, well, it's fairer to tax it at a higher rate, even if that means less money for the government? I think, I think most Canadians don't mind paying uh, their taxes if they know that that money is going to something useful and if they, if they know that the system's fair. And at the, my, my point, our point today with this budget, uh, which spends a lot of money on some useful things, the infrastructure funding is good stuff, uh, the, uh, the, child, the child benefit, good, is going gonna, is gonna to help, uh, uh, help lift a lot of poor kids above the poverty line. Uh, but this budget misses the boat on uh, on creating a fairer tax system. Actually, punts it down the road. This budget actually says uh, the Liberals are going to have some sort of a ill-defined review of the tax system over the next year, uh, with an eye to increase fairness. I think that's a missed opportunity. That should have started today.
Well, you know, I look at this budget and I see a deficit three times what they promised and spending far beyond what they promised and think, okay, tax and spend liberals, and here's the unrepentant socialist saying, not enough. What would you have changed outside of what we've discussed already? Would you have changed how the spending works? Um, um, what I would have done is, uh, if you actually look at overall federal federal revenue, it's down this year over last. The projection is that it's down this year over the last. And we're, you know, in terms of federal fiscal capacity, this is a smaller federal government than we've had since the Second World War. And good. And I would and I would argue, good. I would argue that uh, Stephen Harper's strangling. Of, of the basic ability of the federal government to do its good work is one of his most nefarious accomplishments. And I hope it lasts. And the Liberals punted on dealing with that today. All right. Rick Smith, unrepentant socialist from the Broadband Institute. Thank you. Proudly so. Thank you. official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Some of the sounds of chaos, confusion, after the bombs went off in Brussels this morning. Bombs going off at the American Airlines ticket desk at the Brussels airport. Also explosions at the metro station in Brussels. More than 30 people killed, more than 100 people injured. Today this was brought up in the House of Commons in relation to Canada refusing to, well, Two things. One, call what ISIS is doing to Christian, Yazidis, and Shia Muslims Canada's refusal to call it genocide under the Liberals. And also, our withdrawal of the fighter jets, our withdrawal from the fight against ISIS. By the way, ISIS has claimed responsibility for the attacks in Brussels. So Jason Kenney, former Minister of Defense, former Immigration Minister, stood up in the House of Commons and had several back-and-forth question and answers with Foreign Affairs Minister, sorry, Global Affairs Minister, Stefan Dion. Here's the exchange. The Honourable Member for Calgary, Mindapur. Mr. Speaker, the uh, genocidal death cult of ISIL has claimed uh, responsibility for today's terrible attacks uh, in Brussels. Uh, leading the French President Hollande to say that Europe is at war with ISIS. My question is, Canada also at war with ISIS? And if so, why did we end our combat operations against that terrorist organization? Honourable Minister of Foreign Affairs. Mr. Speaker, we have made this debate. And I think it has been very clearly expressed that we may have different views about how optimally fight this awful Islamic State. And we concluded that the best way was to triple our effort for training, double our intelligence service, 
strengthen our uh, development aid, to extend our effort to uh, not only Syria and, and Iraq, but also Lebanon and Jordan, and that is well received by uh, the coalition, and today is not a day to make politics about that. I hope the minister is not suggesting that President Hollande was making politics in stating that Europe is at war with ISIS. Now, Mr. Speaker, ISIS is also engaged in a campaign to eradicate the ancient indigenous peoples of Mesopotamia, the Assyrian Yazidis, and other people. The previous Conservative government recognized this as a form of genocide, which was followed, an example followed by the EU Parliament, the U.S. Congress, the Obama administration. So, Mr. Speaker, why has this Liberal government reversed Canada's position recognizing the genocide of ISIS against the Indigenous peoples of Mesopotamia? The Honourable Minister of Foreign Affairs. I'm very sorry to say to my colleague that the former government did not recognize a genocide with the action of the Islamic State. They did not rush to this decision. As I speak today, Canada recognized five genocides over the world, in the history of the world, five genocides. If we have to recognize a sixth one, uh, it will be done properly uh, with uh, the uh, view of the international organizations appropriate for that. And I remind him that this is the view also of the United States, of the EU, of, and also of the United Nations. And our fight against ISIL has nothing to do with this debate about the different... The Honourable Member for Calgary, Minneport. Mr. Speaker, as a member of the former government, I assure the Minister that he is mistaken, that I and other Ministers did recognize the genocidal nature of what is happening. The five genocides to which he refers were recognized by motions of this House. We are asking this government, as an executive action, to recognize this reality. Mr. Speaker, the European Parliament, the Obama administration and others have done so. Why is it that this Liberal government reversed Canada's position? Why is it denying the current genocide of these peoples in the Middle East? Minister of Foreign Affairs. Mr. Speaker, our determination to fight terrorism is uh, very strong anyway, but the decision to uh, call a genocide is not only a declaration by a minister that the minister may have done. His government did not do it. If he had not have done it, it would be an act somewhere who would know it. It's not a declaration that has been made by the minister that is, that is sufficient to do so. And Secretary Kerry, Secretary Kerry said that we need to do additional research on it and to work with the international bodies. And it's what Canada is asking for, and it's what we are asking for, Mr. Speaker. This is the debate that I've told you would be coming. We talked about it yesterday, and I welcome your calls on it after the top of the hour. 521-TALK, 521-8255-STAR-580 on Bell Mobility. We can talk about this when we get to the open line portion of the show. We can talk about this. We can talk about the budget. We can talk about Rob Ford. Anything that we've been chatting about on the show, call in on. But I want to read to you from the European Union's actual motion. This was voted on on February 4th, 2016. This is what the European Union has voted on and said. Now, I may not dislike the European Union. I may think it's a wacky body. And it is a body that 
you would think would be more reticent than Canada to say these things. And yet, they say, whereas ISIS Daesh keeps committing widespread and systematic human rights violations, targeting in particular minority groups such as Yazidis, Christians, Turkmen, Shiites, Shabak, Sabera, Mandians, um, Kakia, and Kurds, whereas ISIS Daesh violence is not limited to people but extends to the destruction of religious sanctuaries and archaeological finds, and goes on and on and on about what they've done, including mass murders, the sexual enslavement, and systematic rape of Christian and Yazidi girls and women, including forcibly recruiting soldiers, including sending Christian children being sold into slavery. And the, U- the European Union documents all of this. And this is all documented by human rights groups around the world. Why can this not be said? Why can these words not be uttered? As Peter Kent said last night in the interview that we brought to you, if this government utters the word genocide, then it could trigger legally binding requirements to act. Legally binding requirements to actually do something more than assist in training. Because declaring something a genocide means they have to take action. It means that they have to put boots on the ground or planes in the air. It means that they have to try and do something to stop the genocide. This is Holy Week for Christians. This is Holy Week for Christians, and there is a priest who has been captured guy named Father Tom. He's captured, he's a Salesian priest captured in Yemen in the custody of Islamic extremists who, according to different reports, have pledged their allegiance to ISIS. And there are rumors that this man will be crucified on Good Friday if he is not released. Now, other people are coming out and saying, no, it's not going to happen. Do you doubt for a minute that this group, which has recorded the executions of Christians, Yazidis, Shiite Muslims, anybody they consider a non-believer, and by non-believer they mean their version of belief, is there any doubt that they could actually do it? That on Good Friday morning, instead of waking up to news reports of another terrorist attack in continental Europe, that will actually wake up to news of a Catholic priest crucified on Good Friday, the day that Christians mark as the day Jesus Christ was crucified. And yet our government cannot say that what's happening to ethnic and religious minorities is a genocide. Partly I think it's because they don't want to do anything to act, but also partly I think it's because most of the calls for this come from people that want to protect Christians, and that makes this government uncomfortable. For whatever reason, they do not want to be seen as sticking up for Christians. It's why they have abandoned giving Coptic Christians or Chaldean Christians, some of the oldest sects of Christianity in the world, sects that have lived in that part of the world for 2,000 years, longer than Islam has been there, 
they've refused to give them any priority status in the refugee program anymore. They don't want to pick sides. I don't know how you don't pick sides between a group that says, if you're not just like us, we're going to kill you, and, well, everybody else. You're on the side of everybody else if you are a sane, breathing human who hasn't been twisted by this ideology. But unfortunately, this government is uncomfortable doing certain things. I wish they would get over it. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We'll go to open line when we get back. You want to call in now? 521-TALK. 521-8255-1800-580-2372. We can talk about ISIS, genocide, the terror attacks, all the happy topics. Rob Ford, the budget, you name it. We'll be back after the news, top of the hour. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. That is the Belgian national anthem played tonight at the Ottawa Senators home game as they face off against the Washington Capitals. Played in honor of the Belgian terror attacks that took place early this morning, the terror attacks that most of us woke up to hearing about. A classy move. A classy move considering what Belgium had been going through earlier in the day. That audio is very hard to listen to. Children. Children that survived the terror attacks, crying and screaming. I'm sure there were plenty of adults crying and screaming as well. But that's what the people of Brussels had to deal with this morning. As terror attacks were launched at two different destinations. If you have thoughts on what happened, on the response from Western leaders, on response in general, what should be done, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. I'm asking on Twitter and on Facebook, when will Western leaders actually do something about this? When will they stop just talking? The Cut Banks on Twitter says, Belgium's been on high alert for a suspected attack for months and it still happened. How do you fight this? Uh, Another person says, uh, well, in Canada, we'll wake up when a bomb goes off on Canadian soil. We've had terror attacks on Canadian soil. We've had major attacks foiled on Canadian soil. I'm not sure that we've figured things out yet, and I hope it doesn't come to that. 521-TALK, 521-8255-STAR-580 on Bell Mobility. You want to call in on the federal budget as well and the $10 billion deficit that grew to $30 billion? You want to call in on Rob Ford or anything happy? We'll take happy calls today as well. 521-TALK, 
Peter in Ottawa. You're on Beyond the News. Yeah, hi, Brian. Yeah, I also agree that the uh, playing the Belgian national anthem at the hockey game was uh, was a very classy move that uh, has to be applauded. It looks like Belgium is sort of the canary in, in Europe's coal mine, and um, it's happening with some frequency. Um, you know, France and and Belgium, Belgium in particular, and um, one has to wonder. You know, does does Belgium even have the the capacity? And the uh, the organizational capacity and the and the uh, and the, the common political will to to tackle this problem the way it needs to be tackled. I mean, uh, perhaps Canada should be sending you know sending some aid to, to Belgium to to help them uh, increase their capacity to. Uh, but you know, increasing their physical capacity with assets is only going to help insofar as that the policies change. The, the European the immigration policies uh, need to change. And the mindset needs to change. So unless that happens, we can help. We can throw money at problems left, right, and center. But unless the policies actually <clears throat> well uh, are, are are given a rethink, uh, it's like put, it's like putting gasoline into an uh, to a leaky gas tank. One thing I can tell you, Peter, and I, I remember speaking at length with Jason Kenney about this when he was immigration minister, because I have great problems with multiculturalism especially the multiculturalism ideal that says all cultures are created equal. And in Europe, what they did was they opened their doors to mass immigration, which was not, they were not used to that. In Canada, we've been a nation of immigrants from the start. There were dominant cultures, but we had people coming from all over. But they would assimilate or integrate in some way into the dominant culture. They might change it a little bit, but there wouldn't be... uh, you know, despite there being a little Italy or a Chinatown or whatever, those people within a generation, the kids are playing hockey, um, people are interacting. In Europe, they did not do that. And so my understanding is that they failed miserably at assimilating and integrating these massive waves of immigrants. And you have areas that are, it's been a complete takeover. And so instead of it yeah. looking like Belgium with a lot of immigrants, it looks like a different country has colonized that part That's of Belgium right. or that That's part right. of Germany. And there's no way to reach these people. There's no way to reach into these groups. So when you yeah, say policy was, needs to change, that, I think, is a key one. Yeah, and it was just a couple of years ago that uh, we had uh, we had um, suburbs in France that were uh, set aflame, and then these were in the so-called banlieue. Uh, which high concentrations of um, of, uh, of Muslim populations that are so-called disenfranchised. Uh, it ha- the riots happened in, in parts of, of Britain, so it seems to be we're on a we're on a smooth trajectory here. It's getting you know with more and more frequency. And the question is, uh, when are they going to you know call a spade a spade and and and, and close the borders? I mean, uh, Angela Merkel made a very good point, and she said that multiculturalism, as Canadians understand it. It doesn't work. It's patronizing, and I think she's very correct in that. And she says, as far as German immigration goes, come to Germany. We want you to learn German right away. We want you to to but, adopt. But they our... they haven't done that. We've actually done a better job than they have. So far, yeah. So far, so yeah. We need to be uh, careful that we don't go down the the road that um, that Germany and Belgium and France and to a degree Britain have gone down. You, you yeah. don't want uh, mass groups of people coming in and living completely separate lives. 
that no. th- they are not becoming new Canadians at that point. A, a term right. that I absolutely hate. My parents are immigrants, but I hate the term new Canadians. Uh, there's yeah. just something well, about it that bothers me. Um, but I- I- if there's no integration, then they never become Canadian at all. Right. And, and language language is absolutely the key fundamental part of that. If we're not putting any sort of pressure on new immigrants to uh, speak to speak English. I'll give you an example. I was on a plane one time coming coming from overseas into Canada. There was uh, there were three people in front of me. Neither the one that I spoke or tried to speak with didn't speak a word, not a single word of English. She held up a brand new, pristine, never been used Canadian passport, and she smiled at me. And I looked at the man that she was with, and he smiled at me. And I'm thinking something's not right here. Like, if you got a brand new shiny passport and you can't, you know, say a single word, how did this happen? Well, there there were requirements, and they'd been on the books for decades for people to um, learn English or French. And yeah. that, unfortunately, was not always followed well, by the judges. Uh, yeah. The conservatives yeah. tried to tighten that up, and the liberals j- have just thrown it out the window and say, you don't need to know either language to become right. a and, Canadian and the last citizen. Point, the last point, Brian, you're absolutely correct. With the new technology that we have, now we have the major problem in your documentation fraud. We've got people, jihadis, that are going from country to country with false, uh, with um, uh, computer-manufactured documents, which are often state-supplied. Uh, Russia was very famous for this. Uh, Syria, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of state actors in North Korea involved in, uh, you know, methamphetamine production, super no counterfeit production. Uh, this technology is very much a double-edged sword, and we've got to take larger. Maybe we have to redo our passports. But again, if we can't redo our policies, <laughs> well, good uh, chance on yeah. redoing the passports. Uh, exactly. Peter, thanks for the call. Yeah, uh, just want to read out a tweet before we go to a quick break. Uh, Ted Cruz on an interview with CNN tonight apparently said, "If you won't identify it, you can't defeat it. It is radical Islamic terrorism." Here, here. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility if you want to join the conversation here on Beyond the News. My name's Brian Lilly. This is News Talk 580 CFRA. the news with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Up on the Twitter machine, IT or Thread Googly, I can't figure out what that is, responds to my comments to Peter about integration saying the Sarnev brothers blow integration out of water. They were part of Western culture. If you remember, the Sardin brothers were the uh, two men behind the Boston Marathon bombing. Not saying it's a panacea. I'm saying it's got to be part of making sure that we don't end up with the massive problems that Europe has. It's not going to stop everything. We can look at people like um, Damien Claremont, born and raised in Canada, John McGuire, boy from Kempville. Um, The list goes on. Guy, the Capital Voice, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, Brian. I, I wanted to, first of all, uh, compliment you on the analysis with David Aiken and, and comment about Joe Warmington, too. I'm, I'm going to be okay. all over the place, but let me just shoot a couple of things out there with regards to the budget as well. You know, David made a very good point. Anchors away. The three pivotal planks 
that the Liberals set out to do are now gone. Those anchors are away. Um, David, I think you're right, is probably one of the best political analysis. You know, and you don't know where he sits as far as his political uh, aspirations go, but uh, he's he's definitely one of our better uh, critical thinkers he's in, a straight in the shooter. industry. He really, really is, and I enjoy when you guys go back and forth. Please, um, please uh, keep that going for sure. Um, I never knew the story about Joe Warming and Jimmy Kimmel. That was very interesting. It's why Joe. I get Joe on. Joe always has a good yarn, right? Yeah, yeah. He, I, I remember his uh, coverage of the Occupy movement when he was down searching tents with a heat sensor with Ezra. I'll never forget that. And he found out that what, like 60% of the tents were empty that night. In, in that Toronto, yeah. Sun? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, the, yeah, those tents he were empty. He does some great work. But, so back to the budget. And, yeah, uh, a couple and of things. Uh, one thing on Malambique uh, as well in Brussels, one of the key stats that I found very resounding today was um, 70% of the jails, uh, the people in jail in in Belgium are Muslim, and uh, um, 10% of the population is Muslim, but 70% of the people in jail are Muslim. I found that very interesting. That was a quote today as well. But um, moving on to the budget, um, it's great to see that the quid pro quo for the CBC was attained, um, $675 million over five years. Mm-hmm. So well, the, and, uh, and they continue to get nice coverage yes. for Justin. Yes, and the, the advertising slush fund for uh, the Liberals will be alive and well for the next five years for sure. But, you know, I have a little bit of a problem with it, with this $7.65 billion additional for the aboriginal black hole that seems to never end in this country. And I know that a lot of people will probably take exception to this, but we never see the results or the return on investment for this, this uh, these aboriginal investments. And I hope this time that the liberals will hold to account well, uh, no, the, the aboriginal. That's never going to happen, Guy. Well, they did take the financial accountability away. They, I, I wonder they, why they, they tore that away from the, uh, the, the conservatives. If policy. you, and I had the number somewhere once upon a time, if you looked at, because most of the, the spending for Aboriginal affairs in this country goes to on-reserve. Mm-hmm. It's not for off-reserve, it's on-reserve. Mm-hmm. And if you divide it by the on-reserve population, the spending per capita is huge. But if, if you visit, not all reserves, there are, there are many good reserves, and I've been to some of them, and they work great, but there are dysfunctional ones. And if you go to these places, you see that the money's not being spent the way it's meant to be, and you ask why. Well, then you're just told to mind your own business. Yeah, that's that's very worrisome. So my, I'm hoping that that uh, $7 billion additional uh, pit will uh, definitely produce some results with the with the fresh water and the water treatment. Um, now, it was $1 billion, if correct me if I'm so, for the uh, 25,000 refugees to date? Uh, that's the plan. Is... So that's $40,000 per refugee, and they've been o- here eight o- months. Over three years, I believe. Over three years, but they've been here eight months. Is that mm-hmm. correct? No, no. Oh, okay. So I got that wrong. Then it's it's okay. one billion over three years. Yeah, and they, and I mean, really, the liberals only count from November fourth when they took power. Now that's not including any social services, welfare, or anything else. That, no, uh, that's these folks that's want. just on on the federal side and getting had, them in the country. Had they done this through private refugee sponsors, um, it would have been at a much lower cost and a better uh, rate of integration. Mm-hmm. What are your views, Brian, being locked up in that three-hour, four-hour period? I didn't, I didn't Tell me get, about your day. didn't get to go because of the terrorist attack. I had to chase politicians around the hill. So one of the so, first times in many years that I, that I can remember mm-hmm. that I haven't been in a budget lock. I may have skipped one or two while I was hosting at Sun News, but other than that, I've been in 
most of them since 2001. That included some years with two budgets. Well, thank you for the analysis, Brian. And last night's uh, our, um, interview with Ray Hurd I thought was excellent right. as well. It's it's really good to get some critical thinking on the right, uh, and, and your show really does that, and I Th- thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the call, Guy. Got to get to Duncan. Duncan in Ottawa, making these buttons work. Duncan, you're on Beyond the News. Yeah, good evening, Brian. When is this government going to wake up and smell the coffee and stop seeing the world through rose-tinted glasses? Terrorism, uh, uh, evil is real. Despots are real. Terrorism is real. It's not going to go away until we flex our military muscles and stop it. Well, I'm not sure even that will stop it, but we have to be part of the fight. I mean, it's going to keep coming. And you know what? I should look up the the audio clip of Stephen Harper from uh, last January, January 2015, and play that after the break because um, he he was very pressing. He said, whether we like this fight or not, it's there, and it's going to come for us one way or another. Um, At least they called it terrorism today. I'll grant them that. But I'm not sure they're willing to do what needs to be done, Duncan. Well, you know, we 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 haven't seen the end of this, unfortunately. No, no, we we definitely haven't. Um, the do you think that Canada should be more involved in the fight against ISIS? Is that part of what the response should be? Def, definitely, we can't. You know, and I'm. You know, and <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not saying necessarily we have to necessarily in 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 the invade a country, but we have to we have to we have to hold these the the these these, uh, these um, people accountable, and you know. And you don't think we are right now? I don't think we're. You know, I don't. I, 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 I. Um, the, 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 the. I don't think. I don't think we're 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 doing enough. I don't think we're really taking the problem seriously because we we keep thinking it can't happen here. We're well, too nice. Unfortunately, it has and it will. Duncan, thanks for the call. Thank you. When we come back. I'm going to get this audio. Um, I posted it to YouTube from a news conference Stephen Harper did January 9th, 2015. And it was labeled uh, Clear Language on Jihad from Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Well, it was labeled that because that's what I labeled it. But you'll notice a stark contrast to the way most politicians will speak. This didn't always come through in the media because, well, what does the media want to do to make Stephen Harper look good. But we'll play that and we'll take more of your calls. You got thoughts on what we're discussing tonight? 521 Talk, 521 8255, Star 580 on Bell Mobility, 1 800 580 2372. Call now. You can get on the line on the show after the news. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. 
still raining here in Ottawa on the Byward Market. Watching the puddles get bigger and a guy across the street is rowing. It's after 9.30 at night, people. What are you doing rowing? That's what some people do. I can't believe that we haven't talked about the budget all that much. I guess, well, we did have David Aiken. We did play Ron Ambrose and and, and her um, interview with CTV. But normally on a day like today, budget day, people want to yap about the budget. I used to have a tradition. I would only go to Highs once a year. Highs Steakhouse, which closed down a couple of weeks ago, was the... It was a place for mucky mucks and power brokers and politicos. Not the type of place I'm comfortable. Not the type of place that I like going. But I would go once a year on budget day, and lots of people would only show up on budget day, and you'd often see the finance minister there, and they might mingle for a little while. Well, that is apparently happening as we speak at a different Ottawa bar, just a short walk from here at the Bell Media Studio. I believe Bill Morneau is about to show up in the Metropolitan if he hasn't shown up already. But I'm in here. I'm talking to you, willing to take your calls. Now, let me, before we get to the phones, let me play, show you a juxtaposition. Justin Trudeau's statement on the Terror Act in Brussels this morning was not horrible. He did call it terrorism. He said, we won't stand for it. And I can understand in the early hours him not wanting to say, well, assign blame to anyone because we simply did not know. But he never will assign blame. But let's play a little bit of Trudeau's statement, and then I'll play you Stephen Harper from just over a year ago. What happened today in Brussels was an act of terror. It was violence directed at innocent civilians, and its goal was to take lives and instill fear. We have offered the Belgian government all possible assistance and will continue to work closely with our allies and the international community to fight and to prevent terrorism here and abroad. He said a lot more than that, but it's several minutes long. We can't play the whole thing. But I want you to listen to that and juxtapose it against Stephen Harper, who was asked about jihadis, and his language was quite blunt. But let me just say this, um, with reference, obviously, to the attack yesterday and to all the questions you're asking me today. The reality of the world is the following, and, and I don't say this out of any particular pleasure or excitement, in fact, quite the contrary, but it is a fact. The fact of the matter is this, ladies and gentlemen, that the international jihadist movement has declared war. They have declared war on anybody who does not think and act exactly as they wish they would think and act. They have declared war and already are uh, executing it on a massive scale on a whole range of countries with which they are in contact. And they have declared war on any country like ourselves that values freedom, openness, and tolerance. And we may not like this and wish it would go away, but it is not going to go away. And the reality is we are going to have to confront it. That's what obviously we're doing in concert with our allies, dealing with the very worst manifestation of this, which is an entire jihadist army that is now occupying large elements of large parts of Iraq and Syria. And obviously other things we are doing both here and in concert with our allies to try and prevent and deal with uh, terrorist planning uh, on our own soil. And this is going to be, unfortunately, 
uh, the reality of the world that I think we're living in for some time to come, and we're just going to have to face that head on and deal with it. And that's uh, what our government's committed to do. Do you miss that guy yet? I love the plain talk. I wish we could get that all the time. Unfortunately, it's rare, and that's why we should appreciate it, even if we, well, some people didn't know what we had till it's gone. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Wayne in Nepean, you're hey, on Brian. Beyond the News. It's really a pleasure, Brian, to uh, first time to talk to you. Oh, pleasure's and mine. I appreciate, I appreciate your show, and I'm a fan from now on. My comment on the, what's going on in uh, Brussels mm-hmm. is that uh, people are trying to play down the fact that uh, the jihadists are uh, fake Muslims. I had an opportunity to listen to uh, uh, Rob Snow this morning, and there was an imam in the show. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, people are still playing down that uh, these people are fake uh, re- religiously. But the truth is, as I have uh, experienced uh, living in the Middle East uh, for for years, that these people are on 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 the they are right on what they are believing in. Actually, the book they are following the book hundred percent, and that's what they believe in. And it is uh, unfortunate that uh, some people have tried to play down uh, the reformation of this religion by uh, blaming all these uh, terrorists for being uh, what they are as uh, lunatics, and that doesn't work with the with the with the text uh, that I've read in uh, a couple of years ago. If you sat down with one of these Salafists, and that's the um, the branch of Islam that they practice, and you talk to them. I mean, we, we could find imams here in town that would say, yes, these guys are fake, no, they're not following the religion properly, but you sat down and talked to them. They would describe to you in detail how they are following their theology, how they are following their faith, and and they would be able to, as you say, point to the book and say, here, here is why we're doing it. I have the copy, what, Brian. What people in this country and too many other places do is they try and say, well, they are neither Islamic nor a state, if they're talking that, about that's ISIS. That's not good. That's not a good way to deal with it. And, and they keep saying, I am a Muslim, and I'm doing the, this in the name of Allah. That in no way, that in no way, uh, it means that every Muslim is a terrorist. We did not go through this when the IRA was going around setting off bombs. We didn't say we didn't open up by saying, well, of course, not all Catholics are terrorists or the UVF on the other side of that very same conflict. We didn't say, well, of course, they didn't follow the Bible. Of course, not all Protestants are terrorists. We didn't have to say that. But now we're we're expected to. And and the fact is, those people say, I'm doing it for this reason. And they can explain to you in very clear terms why they have. They have facts, uh, Brian. They have facts and they have books. And I have uh, copies of books, tons of books, explaining why these people are doing what they're doing in uh, Syria and Iraq. And it is that they are following footsteps, the fingerprint of the founder of that religion. They are not wrong according to their ideology. 
But the people that are trying to uh, uh, deny the facts are the ones that are fake, not, not those terrorists. The terrorists are not fake. They're following the strict book that point out certain steps to dominate the world. And the founder set it out. Well, they, it they are trying to... 100% that they're doing they're trying to reestablish the caliphate, Wayne. And it is happening. When, and it, it, when, when some of us came out in 2014 and said, these guys want to establish a caliphate, um, we were laughed at. And then they declared a caliphate. And guess what they've been working to, towards the entire time? They want to control basically from Turkey down through Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, down through Egypt and across North Africa, and then back up into Spain through Europe. They want to have what they had they in the 1400s. They are determined, uh, Brian. Mm -hmm. And my second uh, thought is about uh, Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. uh, Ted Cruz today uh, issued a statement which is so uh, identical to what uh, uh, led the, 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 the winning of uh, liberal government here in Canada uh, of the election. And uh, the point is that He's trying to use the same method and the same uh, route uh, 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 Trudeau uh, followed, which is using minority, which is are seemingly oppressed, quote unquote. And uh, today he issued uh, it's like an edict, sending out uh, law enforcement, and uh, in order to protect. Uh, Muslim minority from violence, uh, which could have been, uh, which would have been committed uh, 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 I, I, I against them. I can't um, debate you on that or say you're right. I have not seen the statement, and I've seen competing news articles about the statement, some saying what you're saying, some saying, Ted Cruz wants to police Muslims. So I, I don't know what to make of it. I'll have to go and dig that up. But I was too busy today chasing around our own politicians, covering the budget, and, of course, uh, the sad news of Rob Ford's passing as well. So, uh, unfortunately, I, I will check uh, that out later. I wish, on. I wish uh, one day, uh, uh, Brian, uh, we could meet and talk. And uh, I have a pleasure to listen to your show since you uh, started here in Ottawa. Well, thank you. Do what you can to spread the word, Wayne. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to get on the program? Five two one talk. Five two one eight two five five star five eighty on Bell Mobility. You're shy. You want to email? Beyond the News at CFRA.com. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Rana Ambrose, interim leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, speaking about the budget and the fact that the Liberals have failed on several fronts. They promised, if you recall, $10 billion deficits. It's now a $30 billion deficit, and most of that is due to their increased spending, not due to a fall in government revenue. In fact, yeah, the fiscal monitor just came out again and showed that 
hey, we were in a surplus for the first nine months of the year. Imagine that. That's crazy talk. But it's true. So the liberals are spending us into a deficit. They're going to add more than $120 billion to our national debt over the next several years. They're doing that faster than Stephen Harper did. For all you saying, yeah, but Stephen Harper did it. One, the economy was in a much different position. Two, it was a minority government. Three, the Liberals, the NDP, and the Bloc Québécois said, you'll spend even more or we will seize power. And they didn't think he spent enough back then. They would have spent even more if they were in power. Even bigger deficits, even bigger debt. So what else does this budget do? Well, slaps taxpayers around, really. Well, we expected this to happen, but as I said, this is not a good day for the taxpayer. What we're seeing now is reckless spending without a job creation plan and no actual plan in the budget to return to a balance. So we know taxes will be going up. They're already going up. We know from this budget they're going up by at least $1.3 billion a year going forward. So this is not a good day for taxpayers. $1.3 billion worth of new tax increases. That's not just a tax on the rich folks. That's not just... You know, sucking it to the 1%, making the man pay. The small business tax rate is staying at 10.5%. That is, in essence, a tax hike because it, it was a tax cut that was passed into legislation previously. Now they're stopping it. When the conservatives did that, the liberals screamed, and they did that, in they delayed a, a cut in the middle rate for six months. The liberals screamed that this was a tax hike. Look at the conservatives, they raised taxes. And you know what? They kind of did for six months just to keep the books balanced and meet their immediate election goals. The liberals said, just spend more and tax more. So they're increasing taxes on small business. Even Tom Mulcair the socialist is outraged by this. Here's a, our, our exchange as I questioned Tom in the scrum after the budget was handed down. Uh, one of the things that one notices first when looking at this budget is several of their promises are simply not being kept. These are key promises that had to do with First Nations children, had to do with our seniors who live in uh, poverty, and it had to do also with people in need of uh, employment insurance. Unemployment insurance in particular, it's, it's galling to see the Liberals back to their old tricks, stealing $6.9 billion from the EI fund and adding it to general revenue. Right now in Canada, there are 850,000 people who have lost their jobs who are not even eligible for EI. The budget only takes care of 50,000 of them. So there will still be 800,000 people not eligible for EI in Canada. And frankly, that's not what they promised. All right, so that's Tom Mulcair. That's, that, that's not the right clip. We'll play the right clip in a second. That was Tom Mulcair giving his overall view of the budget and, and explaining that the Liberals did break several promises. But I specifically asked him about the, um, the small business tax rate. And now here's that exchange. Uh, on the small business tax rate, uh, you said that you would have accelerated it. Yes. They decided to, to hold. Yes. But th they keep saying they want to um, you know, get productivity going in the economy. Yes. They want growth. 
Isn't this a, a missed opportunity? It is an incredible missed opportunity, uh, frankly. And Brian, I, I can't for the life of me understand why the Liberals don't get it. They keep talking about the fact that the economy is slowing down, that we're shedding jobs, which are both true statements. We know that the job creators in Canada are the small and medium-sized businesses. So that reduction would have allowed them to maybe consolidate part-time positions, make them full-time, maybe hire new people. And for them to be completely abandoning their own promise is, is frankly, for us, one of the most surprising aspects of this budget. That is a surprising aspect of the budget, but hey, did you expect that the Liberals were going to stay true to their word? Did you expect that they would that they would stay true to what they had told Canadians in the election? No, they blew right through it. They blew right through it. Hmm. Now, let's get to that fiscal monitor that I was telling you about earlier. Because I misspoke. We didn't have a budget surplus through the first nine months of the current fiscal year that's about to end. We had a budgetary surplus for the first 10 months. This is from the finance department, not Bill Morneau. I mean, he runs it. He could have told them to fudge the books, but from the highlights, it says, for the April 2015 to January 2016 period of the 2015-16 fiscal year, the government posted a budgetary surplus of $4.3 billion compared to a surplus of $1.3 billion reported for the same period of 2014-15. Revenues were up $15.6 billion or 7%, reflecting increases in all revenue streams. Program expenses were up $13.7 billion, or 6.9%, reflecting increases in major transfers to persons and other levels of government and direct program expenses. Public debt charges were down $1.1 billion, or 4.8%, largely reflecting lower average effective interest rates on Government of Canada bonds and Treasury bills. A $4.3 billion budgetary surplus, even though in the first 10 months we spent $13.7 billion more than we did the year before, or in that same time period the year before. In January 2016, the month of January alone, it was a $2.2 billion surplus. We are not going to whittle away a $4.3 billion surplus in two months. Canada was in surplus all year. The fact that all revenue streams are up shows that the economy is actually doing well and was doing well. The fact that government spending is up means that the, the cry that Stephen Harper was engaged in austerity is nonsense. Complete and utter nonsense. Spending went up from April to January. From the last fiscal year to the current fiscal year by $13 billion. That's not austerity. That's spending. And I've said it since 2006. The conservatives spent too much. Not too little. Too much. But that wouldn't fit anybody's narrative, would it? This is why you come here to this program. You come here for the truth. And I'll lay it out bare for you. I'll go to the source documents. I'll read them to you. And I'll tell you where to find them. You want to find this one? You just Google Fiscal Monitor. It's at the website, fin.gc.ca. I'll tweet it out later. This is the truth, the unvarnished truth, the reality, not the spin that you get everywhere else.
Talk to you again tomorrow. Until then, thanks for listening. And remember, I'm on your side.